Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today's podcast is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors. ProLift is your one-stop shop for residential and small commercial garage doors from openers, springs, and rollers to full reinstalls. They offer same-day service on all garage door repairs with no extra charge for evenings or weekends. Serving the greater Portland metro area, call today and set up your free estimate at 503-558-6349 or at proliftdoors.com portland. Again, that's 503 558 6349 or slash portland On this episode of the podcast, we have Scott Jorgensen. And Scott is joining us because he wrote a book called Our Friend Dennis. Is that correct? That is correct. And you worked for Dennis Richardson back in uh back when he was Secretary of State or back when he was a legislator? It was very early on in his legislative career, so it was his second session back in 2005. Okay. Got it. So why don't we start out, if you just want to give us a probably two-minute bio of who you are, how you got where you are, and uh, kind of your experience in Oregon politics. Sure. Well, um, my father was a Marine Corps major, so I got to grow up on base in places like 29 Palms and Seal Beach. My brother was stationed at 29 Palms, and he he loved it. I'm really? Shaking, I'm shaking my head right now. He, <laughs> he, did, he did not love it. <laughs> I, I, my first memories were of Seal Beach, and those are very fond. So, you know, grew up there. Um, dad retired from the service, um, wanted to live in Grants Pass. So I went to Grants Pass High School, then went to college at Southern Oregon University, um, journalism major. Because nice. I, I thought at the time, as a teenager in the late 90s, that, hey, this is a viable thing. <laughs> I'll be able to have a lucrative career. Pre-internet? It was exactly. great. <laughs> well, I liked writing for the school paper. I mean, my, my original goal was to write for Rolling Stone magazine, right? Oof. I mean, I, I liked doing record reviews. I liked writing stories about my friends' bands, you know, things like that. Um, but But life gives you different turns. So I'm so. going to jump in one more time. My, my family lives in Grants Pass and have for the last... 15 years or so and when i was in the national guard i was in uh 1186 infantry which drills out of ashland and has a lot of sou uh, rotc cadets in the national guard so i am intimately familiar with all that you're talking about well and that was where um it was right after my junior year at sou i I got my first professional job at this weekly newspaper in central point uh, that, that's now defunct, right? Because that's most, to the good times. most most of my journalism career there. Um, and Central Point's still standing. It was Talent and Phoenix, right? That got burned down. And I was living in Talent when it happened. And actually, the place that I lived at during that time burned to the ground. Wow. So, yeah. It, it had been a while, right? I mean, I left in 2003 when sure. I graduated, but it still hurts. I dated a, a girl bit. who lived in Phoenix. And so I was like, oh, wow, that was, uh, <laughs> that town is just burned to the ground. Yeah. I mean, I, I have no reason to go back there, right, in any immediate sense. And if I did, I'm sure it would just be really depressing. But, you know, anyway, I mean, Dennis at the time was a city councilor there in Central Point, And he was running for the legislature. He was running against an incumbent um, who he felt had gotten too moderate. And he was very, very conservative when he started out, socially, fiscally, and otherwise. And so uh, I I got to meet him that way. 
you know, a friend and supporter all the way up until the end. So, you know, I, I did journalism starting there in Southern Oregon, um, did, did a stint as news director and talk show host at Grass Pass Broadcasting. Um, and then worked my first legislative session with Dennis in 2005, came back in 2013 with the House Republican office doing communications work, and then was chief of staff to um, Senators Doug Witsit and Alan DeBoer, who was mayor of Ashland back in oh. 2002 when I was you know interning at the Daily Tidings newspaper. Uh, so, so I've been around, and then I did grad school at Portland State, graduated in 2017, uh, was city recorder over there in Aurora. And just absolutely loved it. You know, great, great town, great folks. And just started as city administrator for the city of Rainier uh, about a month and a half ago. Oh, congrats. Thank you. Yeah, that's uh, Rainier is northwest of here, like way up, way up, right? It's about an hour commute that I've been doing, but I, I don't mind it. Because I'm really enjoying the job. So you're saying you've got a lot of time to listen to good podcasts. I, I have a whole lot of time <laughs> to listen to good podcasts, yes. So I, I would welcome that. Your book is called Our Friend Dennis. Yes. And so what kind of inspired you to write a book on Dennis Richardson? It was right after he passed away in 2019. Uh, a, a friend of mine had been really close to him the last few years of his life, Larry Morgan, former city councilor over in uh, Troutdale has he, been on the podcast. Yeah, I was gonna Larry has Larry been on, on the show. show. Larry's yeah. a good guy. Friend of the pod. And, uh, you know, he had worked on the Secretary of State's race in 2016 with Dennis, um, worked in that office with him, and, and they were really, really close there towards the end. So he mentioned it um, right after Dennis passed away, and we met up at Dorchester that year uh, to try and talk about it, but it, it was still really raw. And I think my mother had just passed away, and so I just, my head wasn't there. And I didn't know what I wanted it to look like. I said, okay, is this your standard bio? Is it just from my perspective, my friend Dennis? Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I just kind of let it go for a bit. But then over the, the year or so that passed, I kept noticing all these different Facebook memories popping up where you know people are sharing, here's pictures of them with him from years ago. And I realized that in my immediate circle that there was about 18 people that I knew who'd worked closely with him at various times and that between all of us, we could tell the story of his nearly 20 years of public life. So that's what I decided to focus on. And so that was right around you know May, June was when I started. And then I started by doing all these interviews with folks, a lot of former legislators, leaders, legislators former staffers, and really kind of creating this oral history of you know, his time from the Central Point City Council you know, through his stint in the legislature, his run for governor, and his eventual election as Secretary of State, his service in that office, and kind of what he meant to all of us. So we have not read the book because we are not at all very good podcast hosts or well-researched <laughs> or anything like that. Uh, and, I, you know, I'm sure we can dive into a little bit of the, the specifics of, of the book and of Dennis's life, uh, both, as, as we kind of get going with the podcast. But I can I just start by asking, is it a is this just a, a biography and his life told by, you know, told through the, the eyes of those who knew him best? Or is there something you're trying to say about, you know, is there any guidance for the future of conservatism in the Republican Party here in Oregon? Any ideas on how to best win elections? Any Anything that we can take out going forward? I think so. Um, because there was a lot of discussion about the Secretary of State's race from the perspective of guys like Larry Morgan, who had worked on it. Julie Parrish had done a lot of work on that campaign. And 
they really laid out, here was our strategy. We decided to do things differently. That's the, the issue that I think Republicans in the state have had. And I can speak from my experience working for the House Republican office. Julie Parrish brought me on board when she was deputy leader there. Can I just briefly interject? Julie Parrish, former state legislator, also friend of the pod, been on our yes. podcast before. Yeah. It, it, we were thinking at the time that, okay, let's do things different. We're going to do things differently, and we're going to start winning. And it was like a brick wall of resistance. And what they ended up doing instead was hiring a bunch of out-of-state consultants and paying them way too much money to give bad advice, uh, you know, including messaging that was just completely tone deaf to what the average people in Oregon were doing. And this is for the 2016 race? That was for the 20, that was back in 2014, okay. which was a massive national red wave election everywhere but Oregon. I mean, we actually lost seats here that so year. Okay, so this is this is Republican in general, is what you're talking about. Yeah, that, that was my frustration. Oh, and then okay. come 2016, you know, Julie was working with Dennis on his campaign. And, you know, I mean, Dennis was from Southern Oregon. So even when he was running for governor in 2014, he started spending more and more time on this end of state and kind of learning how to speak to the folks in the metro area about the issues that mattered to them. And he ended up doing some of that once he became Secretary of State. You had things like an audit of Portland Public Schools, finding out that they were really underserving students of color. That was a big issue. That is a big issue still to this very day. Uh, the air quality issues that they were having in southeast Portland because the Department of Environmental Quality wasn't doing its job. So these were things that he campaigned on. And look, most Republicans don't come to Portland. I did a successful statewide race in 2012. That was to eliminate the real estate transfer tax, right? Put it in the Constitution and everything. We hit doors in Portland amid a sea of Barack Obama signs. I hit doors from one end of the state to the other in that race. But we did not shy away from Portland. We did not shy away from the metro area for whatever reason. Republicans in the state are afraid to have those conversations with people in Portland about the issues that matter to them. You know what I've discovered as a Republican running in a very deep blue metro area is there are a lot of reasonable people here. And I know we as Republicans like to paint the Democrats as being just Looney Tunes and they like to do the same thing to us. But there are a lot of reasonable people here. And if you talk to them and they're, you know, they have a, a left leaning view on things, but you can have conversations with them. And I think that not enough Republicans make the effort. Like you're saying, I think that they see Multnomah County as this just this this blue blob, and you know maybe you can catch a couple of them. I know Newt Bueller moved his his campaign headquarters up here specifically to reach out to to Multnomah County, but I think that was kind of the the exception that proves the rule that he was unusual in trying to reach out to, to the metro area. I think Chris Dudley did a little bit in 2010, our, the Republican nominee for governor, but I think that also was informed by the fact that he was a Portland trailblazer and already had a huge amount of name recognition here. But I mean, I think, Scott, you're definitely right to your point that this is obviously where about half the state lives, and I would say probably more than half of the eligible voters, and Republicans tend to 
if not totally write it off, at least just, you know, assume that they're only going to get five or 10% and it makes it very difficult because you really got to run up the scoreboard in a lot of the other parts of the state. And it's, I mean, it's wonderful to hear that you guys were here in, in 2012. And obviously if you were working with Dennis in 2014, 2016, that, uh, you know, that there's still merit to the idea of folks on the right campaigning here. But your traditional messaging is not going to work. Like your, the stuff you get, you mentioned out, out of state consultants, people who are Republican brand people who come from DC or come from wherever that, where they win Republican elections on issues like the Second Amendment and pro life. Uh, that doesn't work here in Multnomah County. You have to reach people on a, at a different level and speak their language. And I, I think that's absolutely right. And I, I, one of the keys, I think, especially now that I do local government, right? Mm hmm. I'm not anti-government. I run a city. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know what that means is I've spent the last few years making sure that local people have good services, that you have parks, that you have clean drinking water, that you your streets are paved. So I think at the end of the day, people want good governance. I think just the complete you know anti-government message, I don't want government in charge of everything. Right. I, well, I think the public, the private sector has a definite role to play. What I am is anti bad government. I'm anti corrupt government. And that was kind of Dennis's message. I mean, that, I, that was part of what got him elected in 2016. The governor's race in 2014 was tainted by the eventual revelations of corruption and incompetence in the Kitzhaber administration. He I ran on transparency and accountability <laughs> and he delivered on both of those things as secretary of state. Yeah, I think when we spoke to House Leader Drazen a few weeks ago, she made a really good statement of, we don't want no government, we don't want less government. What we want is you draw a box and everything in the box is the government's responsibility and everything outside the box is not. And so you can focus on the things in the box and make them as efficient as in, and as effective as possible. But when that box becomes an amoeba, and the government's scope continues to creep and get bigger and change, you can't focus on everything. You can only, and so what you end up focusing on is nothing. And so you get these bloated, ineffective programs. One of the things I like to point out, Oregon has one of the highest budgets per capita in the country. And yet, do we have one of the best services per capita in the country? Absolutely not. Go walk through the Pearl District and you just, you see, it looks like the surface of the moon because they haven't paved the roads in forever. And this is the middle of downtown Portland. I guess that's probably more of a Peabody thing. With layers and layers but, of government involved. Right. I mean, we've got Metro with this is totally unnecessary layer of government here in Portland. But anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> We're good at that on our You're Republican allowed to podcast. Digress. Just ranting against government. <laughs> it's, uh, but it's, it's not an anti-government. It's, it's good government. Yes, good good government. Good, we we good, just yeah. need to to rein it in so that we take this defined box and say this is what the government is and this is what the government should be, and we can focus on those things and make them better rather than just letting the government do everything for everything everyone, which ends up meaning they do nothing for anyone. Defined box was actually a punk pop album I released <laughs> in the late two thousand aughts, and uh, you know, as a Rolling Stone person, you could uh, give me a review on it. Um, I, I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are. What did um, what did Dennis and what did the the folks in Dennis's orbit? What did you guys learn going from twenty fourteen and a losing race to twenty sixteen and a winning race? The difference in strategy was interesting because I think the 2014 campaign similarly 
the Republican Governors Association was making some donations to that. And so with that is usually this kind of string of here's some advice. We want you to do this, the campaign in the box, so to speak. The Secretary of State's race in 2016 was a strictly Oregon campaign Hmm. that wouldn't have fit in the box anywhere else. And that's one of the things that, you know, Julie Parrish and I had talked about forever, that it's not as blue of a state as you think it is. And even a lot of the Republicans are kind of more libertarian leaning and that phrase itself is misunderstood a lot. And even, you know, the libertarian party of Oregon, there's two factions of them. And, mm-hmm. and I, I know well, there's, guys. there's, there's big L libertarian and there's small L libertarian. <laughs> right. Are and you, and folks, you... folks on the left, you know, mischaracterize what libertarianism really is and what it's all about. Um, but I mean, there's Big L Libertarian, which is the party, which you follow the party platform of the Libertarian Party, or there's Small L Libertarian, which is kind of the way that I lean in general, which is just keep the government out of my business, whether that's fiscally or socially. Just, just the government should have no position on a lot of things. When, when in doubt, the government should have no position on something, whether it's fiscal or social. Well, that's where I'm at. I, I would consider myself a pretty raging moderate in that sense. And, and I see both extremes from both parties doing the same thing and taking these positions where I go, at the end of the day, um, mind your own business. Right? <laughs> Here's what I want the government to do. I want clean drinking water. I want parks. I want roads. I Police, I want. Public safety, right. These things can be done, and they can be well. They can be done competently. But, you know, that was another thing that Dennis was really mindful of and that I learned from him was this idea of perpetuating problems. Because every time someone comes along and says, okay, here's this problem. We want government to solve it. Okay, well, we'll create this agency. And then you you create two clients, right? Two sets of clients. So you have the people working in those agencies, and then you have the folks that are being serviced by this agency. Mm-hmm. What do you think are the odds of that agency ever going away once you do that? Right. So, and you see this a lot in Oregon. So, you know, working in the legislature, I saw this a lot. Every two years, you're putting together the budget, and these folks come and they say, Hey, guess what? This is still a problem. You know how you gave us this much money last time? We need 10% more money this time. I think one of the other things that just sort of a mindset between mindset difference between Democrats and Republicans. And I think Democrats think there is a problem. We should do everything we can to fix the problem. And I think as a Republican, you say, well, just because the thing is good doesn't mean the government needs to fix it. And I was having a, uh, so we're recording this on October 14th. 14th. Yeah. So yesterday, the Willamette Week put out their endorsements, and they... You came in second. I did. I came in second, (laughs) but they talked about me first. I don't know if you noticed that. Um, Anyway, they endorsed my opponent, but we had a group chat with uh, me and her and a couple editors of of the paper, and it was actually a really interesting discussion, but one of the things they asked was, which of the local measures are you most likely to vote against? And it was... It was interesting. So, I mean, we've got a couple of them on there. There's, there's universal preschool, there's libraries, there's Portland public schools, there's transportation. There's, there's a lot of taxes coming on the uh, November 3rd ballot. And my opponent, Lisa Reynolds, basically that she started out, well, well, preschool and libraries 
are good. I'm not voting against those. And then she went on to talk about how the uh, transportation one is probably the, the least, least useful. And I concurred, but I've been thinking about that ever since. And again, I'm getting on to more of a tangent, but libraries, libraries are good. I like libraries. I also have a library in my pocket that I carry with me everywhere. Do libraries have the same social utility in 2020 that they did in 1970? So I will I'll push back on that a little bit just because like from an equity lens, from you know that kind of standpoint, you are not representative of a lot of individuals who don't either have smartphone phones or even internet access to who begin do, with. Who doesn't have a smartphone? And there's I can go outside right now and talk to the to the homeless people that are out there and they all have smartphones. Better yet, let's go to the library because that's where people go if you don't have smartphones or internet. And the people who are mm. using the services, trying to find jobs, trying to better educate themselves, yada yada yada. And I my wife and I I have a copy of Hamilton, an overdue copy of Hamilton by Ron Cherno, which I'm I will finish tonight and get back to you. Well, no more libraries. Sorry about that. <laughs> but Honestly, I'd probably be with you. The metro would be the first, the tra- or the transportation one. I mean, metro transportation. That's going to be the first one that I vote against. But I don't know that we can totally write off libraries yet. No, I'm, well, I'm not. I'm not. We're, I'm just, we're not there yet. No. And I'm proud to say that I have books, you know, multiple books in libraries in Columbia, Josephine, Washington, and Clackamas County. That, that's a feather in my cap, right? I mean, I'm a dork, and I was a kid and went to the libraries and. Are they going to be around in 50 years? Probably not. My point is not that libraries are bad. That's not what I said. James Ball hates books. (laughs) (laughs) Libraries are good and they serve a purpose. But do we need a lot more funding for them when 98% of the population carries around all of the known information in the universe in their pocket? Well, see, they serve the same utility that they did 50 years ago, and I would say no, and so they probably don't deserve the funding that they deserved 50 years ago. There's something to be said for that. Um, Ten years ago, Josephine County, I was reporting down there, right, and the middle of the recession, no timbers being cut, no federal money in lieu of timber. Therefore, no books. So (laughs) they had limited law enforcement. Yeah, they had to close all their libraries, but the the structure (laughs) that they had for the libraries was bloated. It was top heavy. And so what happened was a nonprofit was formed and contracted mm-hmm. to provide that service at much, much less cost. So now they still have libraries and three of my four books in all their branches. Right? <laughs> um, and it's working, but they found a better way to do it. Sure. And that was, you know, getting back to this, this idea of perpetuating problems. You also kind of institutionalize them. You can look at things like the war on poverty. Okay. So we've been at it for decades now. So there's no more poverty, right? Right. Yeah. We're in the middle of downtown Portland. I can tell you for a fact that if you yeah, go across out right the now, window. look at the window yeah. right now, that there is absolutely no poverty. You cannot see it. <laughs> this far is, as the eye can see. But a lot of people's job security tell. depends on that problem still existing right yep. and that's how it is with a lot of these things if you if overnight they said hey all these problems are solved well now you've got another problem which is that none of these people working in these agencies have jobs anymore it's a it's a perverse incentive that a lot of our nonprofits who work with poverty get paid their contracts are paid based on the number of people that they see and you're you're absolutely right you, there you cannot say that that doesn't affect some of their decision making 
You know, if you are a leader and you have 10 or 15 people that work for you and you provide homelessness services and the homeless problem goes away and there's no more homeless, are you going to be happy laying off those 15 people? Right. Pro- now, probably now, now they're not. homeless and you still I have mean, more homeless. Like you, you want, I don't think people get into that business because they're selfish or they're self-motivated, but you cannot tell me that that doesn't affect them that, Hey, if we solve the homeless problem, I have to lay off these people and these people who have worked for me for the last 10 or 15 or 20 years serving the public, they're going to have no jobs. So, I, I was just reading an article that talked about how um, they ran an experiment somewhere and they provided direct financial assistance to X number of homeless people, right? And checked in with them a year later. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that they used it. They didn't spend it on drugs. They didn't spend it on alcohol. They spent it to obtain secure housing and to better their lives, right? So the way we're doing it now, the current model is you have a hundred different government employees for all these different agencies at all these different levels who are providing you with services, when really all this guy needs is money for a deposit on an, an apartment. That was, I think, it was right. Salt Lake City. That's they just they skipped the middleman. They just gave him houses. And instead of saying I'm a resident at Multnomah County Homeless Shelter, you say I'm a resident at you know one two three Fake Street or you know whatever your address <laughs> is. And all of a sudden, the the job applications that those people were able to send out that got accepted for interviews and for actual careers went, you know, through the roof. And it's like, oh, yeah, novel concept. It's like, let, you know, let's just trust people to be people and want to, you know, work for themselves. And it worked. One of the first things I did when I took over City Recorder in Aurora was they used to have a police department and they had these old lockers in the back. So we're like, okay, well, what are these things doing? And I'd heard from homeless advocates that one of the things they really need that would make their life easier is somewhere like that to put their stuff in the middle of the day while you're not going to bring all your worldly possessions to a job interview, right? So I arranged with the the mission over there in Salem. I said, okay, can I just bring you guys these lockers so that you could use them? And maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but I delivered them, right? I made the effort. Right. So I, I hope that's what they ended up doing with it. But it, it's stuff like that. It's the ability to take a shower. It's the stability of having that address. It's not... 500 different government employees saying, we're doing something to help this guy. The ability to check out a book at the library. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and when you think about it, too, you have layers of government, right? You've got local government, city, county, federal, state. Right. Mm -hmm. You've got nonprofits. You have churches. All of these organizations, all devoted to helping the needy except the needy are as needy as they've ever been. And these were the kinds of things that Dennis Richardson found vexing. You know, faith was a very big part of his life, public and private, you know. Um, And he saw, this is a story that I love telling. I was in Governor Kitzhaber's office when he resigned, right, when he announced his resignation. I was there, you know, because I was working at the Capitol, Mm. It was at the beginning of the 2015 session, which was a circus because of all of this. So you got all these reporters from all over the state were huddled in in the ceremonial office, shoulder to shoulder, packed in there. And then no one comes out, right? They just literally email it to everybody. here's, (laughs) Here's the audio clip of him resigning. So then I go outside and I call Dennis to see what he's doing. And he is literally back home in Southern Oregon helping people find jobs. Hmm. Now, here's a guy who had just run for governor, lost after being in the legislature for over a decade. He didn't need to do this. He didn't know anybody anything. But that, that's, that was such a contrast for me. 
Here he is on the other end of the state from the Capitol. But when I first met him, he said, you know, I've dedicated this part of my life to service, like Benjamin Franklin outlined that we should do. And if I'm not serving the legislature, then maybe I'll be serving soup at St. Vincent de Paul. And if anyone else had said that, I would have said, yeah, right. He actually meant it. I mean, he put his money where his mouth was. Can I ask something I'm actually really curious about uh, in regards to Dennis Richardson is he is viewed by, I think, by both parties and, you know, by the media, by everybody here in Oregon as having done a really great job of managing his time as Secretary of State in a in a very nonpartisan, apolitical way. And both uh, Senator Fagan and Senator Thatcher have said they tried to emulate that were, if, you know, if, if either one wins the election, you know, coming up in a couple of weeks to serve as Secretary of State. I believe one of those women, when they say that, not the other one, <laughs> will let the readers or uh, listeners decide which. But what was it about his legislative career and the work that he'd done, you know, there, there in Salem, there at the Capitol, there with the building of the relationships with all the powers that be, that led him to be able to carry out his duties as the Secretary of State in such a, I guess, either bipartisan or nonpartisan, you know, apolitical way. So when I worked for him during the 2005 session, he was actually Speaker Pro Tem. He ran a lot of the floor sessions. He got there through a unanimous vote of everybody in the House. So his second hmm. session, still taking a very, very conservative approach. It, it, it was A lot of it, and even how he got to be there, was the fact that he put in his work. He did his homework. And a lot of the people that I interviewed you know, attested to the fact that he was about the first person in the Capitol every morning. And at night, while everyone else was off having cocktail parties with lobbyists, here's Dennis in his office going through budgets. And the book follows, um, I used some of his old newsletters. So I was able to track some of those down. One of the interview subjects, uh, Stuart Rogers was his right-hand man during the 2014 race, actually replaced me as city recorder in Aurora, right? Mm. Dennis would have loved that. <laughs> um, so he kept a lot of these old newsletters, and he didn't even know why. So we started talking about this. He says, hey, I can send those to you. So we're talking about the recession, right? And it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. But then the 2010 election happens. The Republicans go from a super minority to tying the House. Dennis becomes co-chair of the Ways and Means Committee, manages to balance the budget when the revenue is in free fall, right? Revenue yeah. forecast after revenue forecast was a disaster. Managed to do that without raising taxes and insisted on keeping reserves that are helping the state right now to this very day. You know, up until then, they had spent every dollar that came through the door. But he was absolutely adamant after the recession that hit after September 11th. And those legislative sessions, which were fiascos that went on forever, said, no, we need to have... So he had that foresight, and he, he knew about these things. Some of them were things I'd forgotten about, so it was almost a walk through memory lane. In the 05 session, he's looking through the budgets, and he notices that the Department of Human Services had been leasing office space in Portland, downtown Portland, for years that they hadn't ever used. <laughs> right? And so nobody else would have paid that much attention, but he's digging in the budget, digging in the budget, and goes, what on earth is this, and what are you doing? You wouldn't spend your own money like this. He was also really adamant about unfilled positions at state agencies. And okay, so why are you still funding these? Why don't you just 
not fund those positions and use that to balance your budget. When he was running for, I think it was the governor's race um, in 2014, you know, he had a statewide newsletter and he he put it out and said, hey, he, he did a public records request and got the emails of all the state employees. Said, hey, guys, we're trying to balance the budget. Do we have any suggestions? And if you'll remember, he was called the spam king, right? The, the public employee unions just hated that. Um, but the fact of the matter is he actually got a lot of really honest input from a lot of state employees who said, I have like four middle managers that I have no idea what any of them do, <laughs> right? It, it, it ended up coming up with these useful suggestions that he used to balance the budget. So he, he did it. He did his homework. He did his hard work. He campaigned for governor tirelessly from one end of the state to the other. And I worked for him. I was 24, right? Fresh out of college. That guy ran circles around me, even back then. It was all I could do to keep up with him. So I spent four and a half years at Intel as a financial analyst, and I was actually the treasurer for the HOA here in the, the building we're at. And so I, one of the, going back to the Willamette thing, well, Willamette week thing, because it was just fresh in my memory, one of the things they asked is, how would you go about balancing the budget? And it's like, well, one one step at a time. You start at the top, and you just keep going until it's finished. It's it's amazing what you can find when you look at line item details on a budget and you can find all sorts of waste and abuse and all sorts of nonsense that's in there. But it takes someone going and looking at it and it's it's right there. It's plain as day, but it's just no one, very few people have the time and the energy to actually go do the diligence and look through the budget. So let's talk a little bit about the the current Secretary of State race. We've got Shamia Fagan versus Kim Thatcher. Shamia Fagan, the union darling Democrat who beat Mark Haas in the primary. Barely. Barely. And, uh, and I'll say, I, I worked with Mark on that 2012 statewide ballot measure, worked with him for years in the Senate. Mark Haas is a statement, statesman and a gentleman. Always had a really good relationship with him. Yeah. A lot of respect for Mark. Uh, it was fairly shady what the unions did. I think going pushing for Shamia over over Mark. You know what's what's annoying? She's going to kill me for saying this, but Rebecca is that close. Rebecca, my wife, is that close to voting for for Shamia because she sees her ads and she likes the ads, and Shamia comes off as like a reasonable human being instead of the uh, the <laughs> union the shill truth. that she is. <laughs> well, I mean, when I was with the House office. Um, Shamia was in the house. Julie Parrish was in the house. And they would get into these Facebook wars just back and yeah. forth, right? Like literally all night long. So I'd be sitting there checking Facebook before bed, watching them do this in real time and say, okay, well, I know what I'm doing tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a difference too. I mean, I also worked with Kim Thatcher in that time and in the Senate for many, many years. When I was working for Senator Alan DeBoer, he was on a committee, and we were dealing with things like public records, which was a passion of mine, given what happened in the 2014 election. And there's this huge sense, this book opened up a lot of old wounds, um, because there's there's a sense that if the agencies run by Kitzhaber had released the records that had been requested by the press in a timely fashion, that Dennis would have won that election. Hmm. He was really surging there towards the end. So that was one of the things, you know, Senator oh, Thatcher oh. was on that committee. Alan DeBoer was on that committee. And we worked to make sure that a state agency or that any agency in Oregon 
couldn't A, charge you a, an absurd amount of money, right? You're a journalist. I've been a journalist. You go, hey, um, okay, we can give you those records. That'll be $20,000. And you say, okay, that's most of what I make in a year. Right. Right. That, that's ridiculous. And that they couldn't just stall it out forever, that you had to actually be responsive. And, you know, in the years since, I mean, I, I do public records requests. I did a bunch of them in the city of Aurora. You know how much I charged? Zero. I never charged anybody for it. You should have the records in front of you. Ideally, you have them on your website and you send someone a link if they ask for it. And actually, Kim Thatcher, that was one of the things she worked on even as far back as like 2009 was there, there is a state transparency website. And so that, that was one of her babies over the years. So Senator Thatcher has actually worked quite a bit on accountability and transparency. In the legislature. Let's not forget that Shamia Fagan is also the one who introduced the bill to lower the voting age to 16, which was a terrible idea. Which is a terrible idea. Also, you called it shady a couple minutes ago. I don't think it's shady at all. I think it's clear as day that the unions needed a candidate because Mark Haas and Katie McLeod Skinner both voted like uh, against the PERS thing, and they wanted somebody, and they just they funded her from six ways to Sunday. Well, it's and not she so won much that race. Not so much the funding; it's the ballot harvesting. Mark Haas was projected to win up until the day before the election. Like they and. The unions went out and collected ballots the night before and turned them all in from union people to push Shamia over the top. Like, that's the shady part. Money, well, remember, whatever. it was give, going to be Jennifer Williamson. It was originally going yeah. to be Jennifer, Jennifer Williamson, who was the incumbent right in the here district, in 36. district 36 before she got in trouble for campaign finance mis- mismanagement, misuses, using... Uh, I don't know why a state legislator from Oregon needs to go to Hong Kong. Was, didn't she go to like Fiji she or went, something like yeah, that? Like she went on these like random places. A lot spent of spent tens of thousands of dollars. A lot of uh, vacations on uh, the campaign's dime. And which, then McLeod Skinner, I think um, her background was more as a city manager. So I think she was like city manager down in Phoenix for a while. Ran uh, against Greg Walden in 2018. Still lost handily, but it was like closer than anyone had gotten. She had the name recognition, and she had some, you know, backers and everything. And I, and I, and she was probably too moderate. Yeah, I think she would have been fine in that role as well. Even and Cameron I was, Smith, right? Cameron Smith had been running earlier on. He had been director of Department of Consumer and Business Services. I, I like Cameron. I've, I've got a good relationship with Cameron, but he couldn't get anywhere because he was probably too moderate. Uh, he ended up in the Secretary of State's office anyway as chief of staff, and I think he just started a position with the credit unions. <laughs> so what is your advice for Senator Thatcher going forward? I think we're all on the same page that we're Kim Thatcher fans. To uh, win the race based on your experience with uh, Dennis Richardson. Explain to the people of this state how you intend to continue the work that he started. Because I think there is this sense that Dennis did exactly what he said he was going to do, and was just getting started. I mean, there were audits that, you know, he had prioritized. That you, you, it, it had, that audit function had been there all along. It, just it's nobody not had like, used it. Yeah. Right! Um, because it, why would you? If you're a Democrat, why would you audit all of the Democratic policies and all the Democratic systems in place? Why would you do that? I would do it if I were confident... <laughs> that they pass, that they were well managed. Yeah, that if, if, right there. If you are a Democrat in a state that's been controlled by Democrats for thirty years, and you're in charge of an audit function, 
why would you poke the bear? Why would you audit things that might fail? Here, Where's show, your show what a great job we're doing and how many people we're That's helping. It. No, you would you would pick and choose the things that are doing well to audit. You would not like there would be zero incentive for you to in, to make the government better by auditing things. This is why it's so important to vote Republican in this election. You're going to get me on my soapbox again. <laughs> like I don't care if you left, right, or center, but the Democrats in this state have so much control and so much power, there is not an incentive for them to in- improve anything. There is no electoral risk for them behaving badly. And this is a great example of that. A Republican in the Secretary of State's office will audit the places that need to be audited because they are controlled by Democrats and they, because the Republican can then win political points and it makes a better functioning government. A Democrat does not have those same incentives because they are fighting against their own party. And so... Oh, Republican people. I think greatest example is the unemployment department and all the things yes. we've seen. Dennis so we, would have been furious yeah. about that. I'm pretty is, unhappy about it myself, actually. This is actually. middle of October. The coronavirus started in mid-March. I think March 11th is kind of the date that's typically accepted as people having started their lockdowns, quarantines, everything. And people still haven't gotten their checks because what 2009 i think there was a report that said hey yeah the the unemployment department's computer systems are outdated here's money to go fix it and the state of oregon just never went and fixed it they got the money from the federal government a long time ago to do that by the way and that's one of the things that motivates me day to day is that i can remember even just as a being a lay citizen back in 2002 right college student starting my career having to deal with some of these state agencies, including the employment department, and having just a horrific experience. And it didn't feel like customer service at all. So I, I could carry that internally. I could get mad about it. But I've used that instead with the agencies that I've run, the offices that I've been in charge of, to create a culture of customer service where if someone walks into City Hall and they're mad, by the time they walk away, they aren't mad anymore. They feel like they've been listened to. And clearly, this is a failure on on massive levels. Uh, I was with Senator Betsy Johnson at an event this last weekend, and she said it's been a tsunami of calls from desperate, angry people. And there should be some accountability somewhere. My fear is that there won't be and that's a huge disservice to everybody in this state. Senator Johnson, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the podcast. Email me, james at jamesaball.com. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I'd love to get yeah, talked to She's the state senator over there in Rainier. We had a nice ribbon-cutting ceremony event, and she was the keynote speaker. And it was great to hear from, from her, as always. Um, she got a copy of the book. <laughs> she had worked closely <laughs> with Dennis over the years uh, on budgetary issues and, and so much more. Cool. Well, we are just about out of time, and so one of the things we like to do... Wait, wait, wait. Okay, okay. but before we ask our last question, I want to ask our penultimate question. If you're a music guy, wanted to write for Rolling Stone, this was where your career was going to go. <laughs> Give me the album of the 2010s. Most of my favorite albums are from like the 70s. <laughs> No, no, no. Rolling Stone, you can't write about something from the 70s. Well, I mean, I gave gave all that up, you know, once I actually got a subscription to Rolling Stone. (laughs) Because what they did was one issue, they have Jennifer Lopez on the cover. They're like, oh, J-Lo rules. And the next issue, they review her album. They're like, this album is terrible. (laughs) You say, come on, you guys, really? Best album of the 2010s. I don't have a hard time because, you know, my favorite album of all time is London Calling by The Clash. Oh, solid choice. So if I were to do my top five, it would be that. It would be Scarlet's Walk, Tori. 
Tori Amos. I think even that's like 2005 or thereabouts. Tori Amos in the top five of all time. Okay. Yeah. Solid. Uh, Weezer Pinkerton. Weezer up in there. River Phoenix is a really fun read. If you ever like want to dive dive down the Wikipedia rabbit hole, he put himself through Harvard by being the frontman for Weezer, which is like a super awesome thing to do. Well, and he did that because it, this album is very emotional. I mean, he really put himself out there. It's like you're reading his diary, and it flopped. So he said, okay, well, to hell with this. I've still got money. I'll just go to Harvard. But well, then it became we... <laughs> like this cult classic, you know? Hmm. So th- those three albums, what else is in my, my top five? Um, uh, Blood on the Tracks, Bob Dylan. There you go. Also okay. from the 70s. Um, I got that back in 2002 prior to a, a horrible breakup. Because <laughs> 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 I knew that was the last album I bought right before we split up. This oh, four-year no. relationship felt really bad about it. And uh, Bob Marley and the Whalers Legend. Bob Marley. Solid. Okay. And, and so anymore, my kick has been Oasis. You know, their first couple of records. I've been really into that. The The best album of the 2020s is going to be from Robots Building Robots, my band. <laughs> it's called Dysphoria, and we're going to be releasing it probably in the next few months. They're there doing the last background vocal tracks, like literally tomorrow. Listeners, nice. check out your Spotify coming up, coming to a... To a smartphone near you, which James thinks 98% of Americans have, and it turns out it's only 81%. I Googled that mid-podcast. Yeah. But the 2010s, I mean, most of what I've heard out there is garbage. I really just don't That's have bad. much use for most of it. It yeah. doesn't do a thing That's for fair. me, so I'd rather listen to Back in Black. In, in my defense, 81% is still really high. It is really high, <laughs> just like a lot of Portland with the legalization of the weed. But the 19% of people who don't have smartphones are probably the ones who need the services the most. I will say the answer I was looking for was Kendrick Lamar to Pimp a Butterfly, album of the 2010s. Mic drop. I'll have to check that out. (laughs) All right, back to politics (laughs) for just a few minutes. Um, One of the things we like to do at the end of our episodes is ask our guests who your favorite Republican is. And so I'm going to caveat this and say, other than Dennis Richardson, since that's kind of who you uh, have been writing a book about. So to the left of my office over there at Rainier City Hall, I have pictures of three people hanging. Dennis is to the far left, which he would think is hilarious. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and then we've got Vic Atia. Mm, and I nice. wrote a book about him, too, Conversations with Atia, some of his last recorded interviews. Class act. Great guy. And then uh, to his right, Dwight Eisenhower. And I actually just rented a book from the Rainier Public Library about <laughs> Dwight Eisenhower. Gosh, I picked the wrong episode to come, <laughs> out, to come after libraries. <laughs> well, it, it, b- both of these books, you know, Conversations with Atia and... Uh, our friend Dennis are at the Rainier Public Library. Oh, Dwight Eisenhower is one of only two presidents from Texas, where I spent a good chunk of my misspent youth and was just vacationing at for two weeks, and Jim Baller recorded a podcast without me. <laughs> we did. It's true. Well, and he spent time in Kansas. What I like about him is that, um, first of all, you have the military thing, right? Oh, Liberated yeah. Europe from fascism. These idiots running around the street sending fires at Portland. Oh, we're anti-fascist. Shut up. Okay, <laughs> what concentration camps have you liberated people from, uh, right? What are you actually doing to help anybody be more free? Go home. Um, but he, he did that. He liberated Europe from fascism, and he also built our freeways. I love our freeways, inspired by the Autobahn, as it Talk were. about good well, governance. Governance done well. Yeah, that's, so interstate system. that's not anti-government. That's, hey, here's a public works project that will benefit people for generations to come. Here that will is. benefit free markets. That will benefit the average person traveling around. 60 years after he's out of office, we're still talking about trying to get better roads and better streets here in Portland. It's one of the things yep. you, Jimbo, are campaigning on. And that's, Dr. Reynolds is a wonderful person. But if I were in HD 36, I'd be casting my vote for you so we can get some better roads like Dwight. Well, thanks, Nick. 
All right. Well, with that, I think we're going to end the podcast. Gentlemen, thank you so much. And listeners, we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to the Rational Republican Podcast. Your hosts are James Ball and Nick Perlosky. The show today is brought to you by ProLift Garage Doors of Portland, serving the greater Portland metro area for all your garage door installation and repair needs. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us at james at jamesaball.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find our episodes at jamesaball.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts.